You are listening to Concrete Conversations, an informative podcast brought to you by the Concrete Masonry Association of Australia. We represent the concrete masonry and segmental paving manufacturers in Australia. Our podcast will discuss technical information and case studies with some special guests from our industry. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of the Concrete Masonry Association of Australia. On Concrete Conversations today, it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Andrew King, who is a civil engineer with experience in all levels of government and private practice. He's employed as the Coordinator Engineering Services with the City of West Torrens here in South Australia. He considers himself lucky to have been mentored and influenced by some of South Australia's most respected and passionate water professionals and academics. Andrew is Chair of Stormwater South Australia and a member of many of the Stormwater Reference Committee's working groups and networks established over the past decade. Andrew is consistently pushing for better practices, capacity building, guidelines and legislation in relation to stormwater management, water-sensitive urban design and related fields. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you very much. What an intro. I can leave now. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew, before we get started, could you give us a little bit of a background as to how you got into engineering and, in particular, water-sensitive urban design? I guess as a mid-high school student, I remember going along with Dad to go see one of his friends for a social thing, but at his friend's work. And he happened to be a senior civil engineer with the Department of Transport, the roads department. And as a kid, I knew I was into all the Lego and building things and building models and stuff like that. And whilst they went off and did their adult conversation, they left me with this model of the South Road overpass on Crossroad. It was around the era when that had just been built, the Emerson overpass. And I was just enthralled in this thing. And Dad's friend ended up saying, you know, explaining to me how they had to design it and build it. And it's like, building stuff, cool. Models, cool. <laughs> I want to do this. And it sort of aligned with what my school sets were in school. And that was, that's the trigger that I remember as being why I wanted to do engineering. You get to build things. And was it something that like from high school you were like, I'm going to be an engineer and therefore my pathway to that is doing these things? And I, I think maybe it was my shallow-mindedness that I had an idea in my head and that was it and there wasn't too many other things. <laughs> People call that determined. Determined or, or focused. S- yeah, single-mindedness through laziness maybe. <laughs> but it panned out okay. And as you alluded to in the intro, I was lucky that some of my university professors were you know, a guy called Professor John Argue, who's the grandfather of water sense of urban design in the country and internationally recognised. He was like my one-on-one lecturer and his passion sort of run off Pardon the pun. Yes. To myself from that water perspective and wanting to think better and creatively about water. So just if we could go back to that time in university and obviously that wonderful influence that you've spoken about, but after wanting to be an engineer for so long and knowing what you wanted to do, was there something different around university that changed your perspective? So I guess when you study engineering, you get the full glamour of the structural side of engineering sort of put me to sleep, numbers and calculations (laughs) and beams and concrete. But there was something about the water side, particularly the university I went to was very practical in nature. And it sort of became, it almost sounds egotistical, but it became the control of nature. Mm. The fact that watching water go down a channel and the waves and the patterns, that there actually was numbers behind that. And you could calculate that and you could control that. That was, I think, where my initial interest in getting into the water side came. And it wasn't until numerous years into practice where the pickup of best practice started to come into the mindset of, about doing things better. And, and again, that, that sort of what control of nature or mimicking nature to do things in a better way it sort of came into the field. 
And Andrew, you've gone through university and then what's your first role after that? So I was lucky and there's an, there could be a bit of an irony to this, but by the time I came out of university many years after meeting Dad's friend when he was working at the Department of Transport, Dad's friend was actually the chief engineer at the local council in which I lived. <laughs> so final year university, we needed to do six weeks, something like that, placement as part of the final year of university. I was lucky to get a job with that council working for that same senior engineer who influenced me and developed a couple of cool projects. They were happy with what I did and actually got me back as a graduate and spent my first year of working, working for them as a graduate civil engineer in, in local council around the, you know, literally three blocks from where I lived. And from there, managed to bounce into state government, a Department of Water version, and then even up, ended up working for federal government, working for the Bureau of Meteorology and the flood forecasting in the weather station right next to where the guys are uh, on TV every night talking about the weather that's coming tomorrow. So what do you, what do you say about those departments that get it wrong? <laughs> I think everyone gets things wrong from time to time because we're human. Yeah. Getting things wrong as long as you're not doing it too much, getting things wrong is the best way of learning how to get it right. It's true. So there's a resonance to some projects I've been involved with and some of my designs. As long as you only get it wrong once, you're doing okay. Andrew, we have a lot of young engineers that listen to this podcast and all I would say is there for them that your parents are useful in this context with friends. But do you have any other advice for young engineers starting out, particularly with regards to study and what they choose to do? I think thinking about that question is like once you get into the work world, I think that I would like to think, and, and maybe it was too long ago for me to remember when I was coming out of university, but if there's an enthusiasm to learn, to understand that, that is inherent in, in what university study and development is. Unfortunately, when you get in the real world and a work life, there can be a culture of a rut. You, you find a way of doing something and then you keep repeating that. It's an efficiency, <laughs> but it's also a rut. And I think my, my key message to people coming out is don't let yourself get columned into that rut. Make sure you keep your enthusiasm to learn and understand. And I get maybe I'm biased because I'm strongly involved in the capacity building for water sense of urban design in South Australia, which is all about getting people to learn and understand what's on the horizon, what's the better way of doing things and why you've got to do things better. And to that end, it's one of the most amazing things about capacity building. Sorry, when I say amazing, you know, it's one of the most confusing and challenging things about capacity building is that when you actually understand some of these advanced better ways of doing things, understand they produce a better product, cost competitive or cheaper price. It's almost a no-brainer that this is the way that things should be done. <laughs> and yet. But, and yet <laughs> we keep doing things the way we have always done them. And I guess there's an analogy from that. Standard may not be bricks and pavers, but standard stormwater drainage. Anyone that knows the first thing about urban stormwater drainage, there's pits on the side of the road, water goes in the pits, they go into a pipe, the pipe goes down the road, goes into a culvert or a creek and out to the sea. If we wanted to develop a system today with all the things we knew of the most efficient way of delivering every ounce of pollution from our urban landscape out to the oceans, that's what we would build. Mm. Now, I'm not being critical of that technology as it came over in the 1920s, 30s, and that was the way it was developed. People weren't thinking about water quality in any way, shape or form. It was only about flood. But we're not in the 1920s anymore. We're in the 2020s. Yet we're still building pits to pipes, pipes to channels, channels to creeks, creeks to ocean. Mm for the most part, and it's this hard slog to do things differently. It is. Whereas anyone who understands the basic principles of cleaner stormwater, which is not hard to do, would say you need to do it differently. And, so I, that, and that's one of those classic ruts. No, and I think it's so true. I was at a conference once on stormwater, not one of yours. It was for engineers, and the solution was just to put in better nets for the pits. 
So it was capturing more. Mm-hmm. And it just like, come on, you know, we've got really smart people in the room. Is that the best that we can do? Another learning is... Again, it probably drives out of efficiencies of business and organisation, but the silos that culturally get built into industries and organisations and that the diversified engineers work with the engineers, landscape architects work with the landscape architects, Mm -hmm. the horticulturists work with the horticulturists. Breaking those silos and integrating of design, numerous industries I'm involved with have an integrated design category. I reckon it's the best category of any sort of industry awards where you demonstrate those groups working together and it's phenomenal sometimes how you know the engineers will say, well, I, I want to do this in a project. And the landscape architects go, well, I can build on that because I want to achieve something else on a project. And then the horticulturist said, well, what you guys are doing can actually help what I want to do. And suddenly you get throughput into a design. It looks seamless. It works perfectly from everyone's perspective rather than one being attack on to the other where it looks disjointed yes. um, and doesn't work. So, Andrew, you've been with local governments for a while now. Can you give us a little bit of an insight into what it's like working in councils? So you mentioned before that I've sort of been through all levels of government and and private practice. My current stint in local government is heading up to 18 years in one place and seven years in private practice before that. One of my drivers to move from private practice back to local government was to get closer to the coalface of decision-making. At that stage of moving had the passion for advancement of water sensitive urban design. And as a consultant, I could try and lead the customers, in most cases being councils, to sort of say, hey, look, this is a better way of doing it. Have you thought about this? By moving to local government, I had a better ability of them being the customer and sort of framing that direction, framing the strategic direction. And most local councils now have moved really well into their strategic conversations about water sensitive urban design being critical in their approach to things and environmental considerations and urban heat island considerations and sustainability considerations. Those things are making stronger and stronger cases in local government strategic directions and also then finding their way into coalface implementation of works. And so that's the key thing about local government is that interface, the, the direct interface of community. You know, the, f- the footpath out the front of your house, the road and curb out the front of the house, the tree out the front of your house. They're all local government assets. They're all controlled by local government. Local government maintain them. Local government rebuild them. Local government drive the design of them when they when they come up for, for redesign. Andrew, it's just a wonderful insight because I think everyone sort of has their experience with councils and, and mainly a lot of people have that experience when they're doing something to their house. You know, I mean, you've mentioned a lot of strategically what they're looking for now, but what are the sort of three main areas that come up as the biggest pain points in local council that we may not understand? You were mentioning you know, modifying building houses. Mm-hmm. Yes, council in many cases, and I guess to the average home builder in most cases, is the planning authority. For that Quite often councils get a hard ride for planning where realistically it's state yeah. legislation or state-owned legislation and regulation that councils have to measure against. Mm-hmm. I think generally they don't have control over the planning system that I think the lot of community has. Mm-hmm. So that's one of those misnomer points. Mm-hmm. And then there's plenty of other areas where local government can be in a little bit of a no-win situation with many things like like, for example, street trees. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are supportive and want more street trees and we know strategically that we need more canopy cover, we need more greening, we need more cooling in our environment. So street trees are a big focus for local government. But there's still a reasonable an element of community who don't like you know, the leaf litter drop or the, the idea that, oh, look, this tree might drop a limb and you know, it could be a hazard or something like that. So quite often there's, there are subjects in local government which quite often can be no-win 
Right. Um, the traffic control is another one of them where half the people on the street want something to slow the traffic down, a, you know, a speed hump, a, a road plateau or something like that. And the other half sort of say, well, I don't want that in my street because it might impact my parking or my enjoyment of driving along my street. And so quite often there's the no wins and you've got to develop the balance act. Mm. Most councils are trying to do the right thing by the community. There's not normally uh, conspiracy theories behind decision making to a large extent. No, I think it's, it is always fascinating because I think a lot of the times it is easy just to sort of go, oh, you know, the council's this, this and this, but there's so many other things that they're competing around and internally as well. Andrew, when we talk about roles of pavers in local government projects, can you talk a little bit about your experience with those? Yeah, so I guess the the number one area I sort of came to with pavers was permeable pavers. And if you've got a seven-hour podcast, I could probably talk for permeable pavers for nine. But I know you don't just want to focus it on that. Um, well, that, we do. We just need to book longer here. Yeah. <laughs> so permeable pavers is pretty much where I sort of really sort of got into it. And the fact that permeable pavers aren't just permeable pavers, there's there's a misnomer or and a lack of understanding, I think, in across industry and all sectors about what a permeable pavement is. And I get excited about permeable pavers. Sorry to sound like a geek, but because of the number of different ways you can be used and the different installation types and and stuff that can be done there. But I guess the other thing more broadly with pavers is the ability of being able to use pavers as an urban uplift, as an improved look and feel to a locality. So when it comes to footpaths, the council I work with at the moment a couple of years ago we made the decision that all of our new footpath works were going to be done in brick paper. Most of the footpaths in our council area at the moment are concrete. And one of the things that we, we did is worked with a landscape architect and they gave us a colour scheme, which is effectively a tritone paver arrangement. To, it was actually two different colours and then also two different textures for one of the covers giving a try look. Before that, we were pretty much, like most people do with bricks, it was either the charcoal colour or port blend, which is the, the ready grey, which kind of looks like every other council that uses brick paper. And so by moving to this tritone colour, and actually, again, you come back to lessons to people coming on, and we wanted to move to a paver product that had a better aesthetic, but at the same time, we also, you know, critical to local government, needed to be thinking about the dollars, and there's a lot of footpath we roll out every year, and incremental increase and something like that means you don't get as much done, and you, you always need to be mindful of that. Mm-hmm. So by actually changing the paver shape to a more rectangular rather than interlocking, we were actually able to use cheaper shaped pavers but slightly more expensive materiality and came in cost competitive. And again, you know, less, we had three pallets of pavers out on our site rather than two, mm-hmm. which wasn't too bad. Our biggest fear factor is what the, with the random place palette, uh, random place colour pattern, and how we were going to go with the contractors and whether the pain in the butt cost factor was going to hurt. But I was impressed the first, the first big footpath job we did with this contractor who was you know, the guys on ground were a little bit nervous I honestly expected to be able to pick where they started the job and where they finished the job. Based on the blending? Based based on the blending and the colour mix. And they actually started in the middle of the job. I'm going, oh, is that the best spot to have something that doesn't quite look like the rest of it? And hand on heart, at the end of the job, you couldn't tell where they started. So other than a little bit, we got them to rework because they they did the edging a bit different from what we wanted. Mm -hmm. But that was just a, a miscommunication. From paver one, the blending was just perfect on the entire job. As an organisation, we've had feedback from industry. The supplier of the pavers actually said they had two or three other councils ring them up and say, well, what's that mix? We like it. Mm. And on threat of, of harm, I told him he's not allowed to tell anyone. It's like our KFC secret spices. <laughs> I'm, sure it'll, I'm sure it'll get out and others might copy it, but imitation is the greatest form of flattery, I think they've said. So I know, yeah. Um, so that's good. It's something we've been able to put a stamp on. It gives a bit of a unique look and feel. We've been able to do it in a cost-competitive manner. 
And then we've also been able to use the same cutlock pattern in our more high-profile projects with a more high-profile shape of paver, the, the trihex pavers rather than the rectangulars, mm-hmm. which it gives again gives an extra level of look and feel and aesthetic for those locations you want to buy the extra bit of uplift for. So we've been able to change the standard over, but at the same time giving ourselves the flexibility for the better spaces, the uplift spaces. Now, you mentioned cost, and we normally don't like to talk about it, but could you just talk us through some of the cost considerations from a council perspective? So what's interesting is, again, quite often there's this misnomer that pavers cost more, and and I think half of it is doing anything different probably costs more, and that's almost the default position of a lot of people. We've actually worked through with a lot of our contractors, that, particularly in relation to the footpaths, and when you're doing footpath work, quite often you're the domestic driveway through the road verge, you're replacing that as well. We're actually getting cheaper rates to do that in brick pave than what we're having for concrete. So that almost takes it to a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. In a road situation, it's probably a little bit not as cost comparative in the upfront. Yeah. Got an interesting project on at the moment, but we've done numerous projects where we've used them in, in road environments. Mainly the larger scale ones have mainly been the permeable style solutions for, for specific purposes and bringing them more and more into the flat top traffic control devices like what most people use now instead of a speed hump, a flat ramp up, flat top, go down, which what they're called flat tops, they're flat on the top. Yeah. But being able to brick pave those rather than again just doing them in concrete or bitumen, add a bit of aesthetic to something which quite often can be a distractor in the in the street. And I don't understand with a lot of those flat tops why some councils, I won't call them out, actually do a print that looks like a paver but isn't a paver. That's probably my biggest cringe factor. Cringe factor? Yeah. Um, (laughs) Particularly when that's got a bit of age to it and suddenly you can see all wheel marks in them. Yes. Yeah, because that's done over bitumen. Mm. I think it's an easier way of doing it. They won't move because those stenciled bricks aren't going to move apart. Right. Because they're uh, bitumen, not brick. And, you know, I think there's also an entire chain here because with a lot of brick paving, there are people who talk against brick paving because it doesn't stand the test of time. And it's landed as a criticism on brick pavers, holus bolus, throw the baby out with the bathwater. But if you drill down into it, quite often it's the workmanship of placement mm. or the design, having something in there that it shouldn't have in there, rather than necessarily it being brick pavers are wrong. Yeah. And we talked about making mistakes and you do it once and learn from it. I was involved with a project where we put permeable. It was actually a really clever fix. We had a road design, extremely flat area where we were struggling to get any grade. You sort of got one metre of fall over a couple of metres of curb. And we had this feature driveway entrance to a major public place. Mm-hmm. And we just couldn't get any fall over this entrance. We couldn't get the water to go anywhere. And it's like, well, wait a second, we're on a relatively sandy environment. Why don't we just build the whole thing flat, but build it out of permeable pavers? All the rain that lands on this will just go straight through the permeable pavers and drain away because it's a sandy environment. Great idea, and and this is fifteen odd years ago, so Five early zero. early learnings in in permeable pavements. Yes, um, maybe even the first permeable pavement job I was involved with, and not understanding the nuances of permeable versus conventional. One of the things which is now very much shun upon, and where the case is an example of why you don't do it, the geofabric was installed just below the paver goes on a fine gravel. Yes. And that fine gravel sits on the, the larger ballast. Between the fine gravel and the ballast, there was a geofabric layer added. Absolutely great skid zone <laughs> to enable movement. And we had this feature entrance was on a higher speed road, 60 road, but you know people were travelling. There's not a lot of other things around. Travel, travel vehicles through there pretty quick. And all these cars turning in and off with a little bit of speed. 
We end up moving the entire brick paved pattern over by a brick. It slipped so much. And then, you know, there were those detractors who sort of said, oh, permeable pavers don't work. But we delved deeper. We understood what was going on. We took it all up. We removed the geofabric layer, put the pavers back down, and I think that was probably 10 years ago we did that, and it hasn't moved an ounce since then. So that's the live and learn. But that's also the understanding of doing things the right way, having the right details, making sure that the right information is with the right people and they have the right skill sets. And over that last 10 years, I reckon I've had at least three or four contractors come to us whilst doing permeable jobs. We've made sure we haven't specified that geofabric layer, but we've had three or four contractors come back to us and ask the query, ah, we're putting a fine gravel over a coarser gravel. We've got, Surely we're going to have a geofabric in between there. Do you want us to add a geofabric layer in there to stop the moving? And we say, uh, no, please. No, no, please. <laughs> Andrew, how difficult is it when you've got an underlying vision of what the local government wants to achieve with that practical element to bring that together? Is there tension in that? I think sometimes there's a little bit of you need to break ground, you you need a bit of luck, you need a bit of support, you need to fight hard to break ground initially. Mm -hmm. But it's one of those, it's a bit like a Rolling Stone analogy that once you've broke the bubble, once you've got the Rolling Stone moving you get momentum behind it. The changeover of our paver type on the footpath stuff. First couple of jobs, a couple of people said, oh, you know, is it going to work, whether they're the naysayers or whether they're the devil's advocates. But once we got a couple of jobs in and suddenly people go, oh, we like that. Now that we're two years into that experience, the idea of Xeroxing that onto new projects without thinking, there's no blip, there's no bubble, there's no thought, there's no challenge. We sort of broke that a couple of years ago and moved forward. Breaking away from pavers and more into water sense of urban design in an urban council and established area. One of the things our council is proud of is our installation of rain gardens, another water sense of urban design element. We've retrofitted more rain gardens into our council area than any other metro council in South Australia by a substantial number and seen by others as a leader in that area. Again, there was hard work at the front end of that, but now we have not just your people who are more your champions of the idea, but that disseminates through an organisation where others that don't need to be pushed to think about it, others that maybe inherently wouldn't have thought about it. Now know that's the culture of the organisation, it's the culture of the industry that, hey, look, is this project an opportunity for that? Can we fit one of those in here? And those sort of changes is, is what can be influenced in local government through champions of better and good practice. I think that's you, and you're alluding to my question is why it's been so hard to achieve that compared if we look internationally where it is mandated. I mean, I think even in Canada, you can't build a car park unless it has permeable paving in it. And even then, you have to filter that and they reuse it for a variety of different things. And it's just such a shame, I think, in Australia that we really struggle to get to that first step of paving. Do you have any insights on that from a local government perspective? Oh, so now you're entering into a 15-hour podcast. One of the things that keeps me going is trying to break that barrier and work out the best way to make that change. Is it the carrot? Is it the stick? The carrot is the capacity building, the documentation, the industry support, the conversations, the presentations, the workshops. The stick is legislation. And South Australia has been behind most of the other states in regard to a lot of the water sense of urban design legislation. It's great that we've got a water sense of urban design policy that's been around for a while now, 
that was the first time that tabulated water quality improvement, actually you know, how much of what pollutants you needed to try to prevent from getting into receiving waters sat into place. We've just gone through a generational change to our planning system in South Australia and there was a lot of work done by some key people to try and provide support to the planning system to make positive steps of improvement. We won in some areas, we didn't win in other areas. There's still conversations going on and there's still visions to try and work out how we can further enlighten and frame that. There's things that, you know, even in that planning context, there's things we're trying to do within industry and, and with pavers. A lot of the development we see in our council area, maybe the knocking down of an existing house on a 900 square metre block and four or five road dwellings going up with a common driveway down the side. We're trying to work with industry to develop a standard detail, a standard cost comparison between if you did that driveway all in conventional brick, what would it cost? And then if we take half of that driveway and do it permeable so that half that driveway doesn't generate any runoff from the site, and if that half driveway is about a quarter or a third of the site, suddenly you develop the site and you make a whole lot more hard surface. Most developed sites go from about 25% hard surface to about 90% hard surface. So that's not a twofold, it's a three to fourfold sometimes of how much extra water can run off a site when it's developed. But if you can take out half of the common driveway, third of the site, quarter of the site, and not let that run off, then you're pulling that back quite a lot. And I almost think that you're talking about barriers to uptake. I think that providing builders and customers and clients and homeowners the most simplified version of information they don't have to think it's, it's almost like sustainable design for dummies is almost like what we need yeah you know, i'll have page 37 okay get everyone to use page 37 of the dummies book and i think that's the better way of bringing about change i think we're in a anti-authoritarian era let's not get into politics but i think that filters that could through. be a 26 hour podcast yeah i think that filter, i think that filters through to everything mm. so the more that the system tells you to do something yep the more pushback mm. if you can provide page 37 of the dummies book which is the carrot make it simple and easy make and with a little bit of demonstration about this is either going to cost you the same or it's only going to cost you five percent more but you get a 50 percent improvement of aesthetic and you're doing something for the environment because that permeable pavement in a driveway is not just about removing the quantity of runoff. If that permeable pavement is right next to a metre-wide garden bed, you're going to get double down, triple down vitality of growth, health of growth, mm-hmm. speed of growth of that landscape strip. So instead of being these pathetic little things for three years, you're going to have a forest there in five. But by water not leaving the site is also not leaving the pollutants that come in that water are not leaving the site. Mm-hmm. So this is this integrated design I was talking about before. Rather than thinking about just, oh, this is ticking off my stormwater management requirement, it's ticking off your water quality requirement. Mm-hmm. It's improving your landscape. It's improving your aesthetic. Suddenly, if you start looking at it that way, yes, it might cost 15% more, and I'll make that number up, but 15% more than what a conventional brick pavement does. But by providing all those other offset benefits, it saves me having to put tanks which are twice the size on the houses. So that could actually be a direct dollar cost improvement. Hard to put a dollar cost to what it's worth for your garden to be three times as good in two years' time. But they're the sort of things that people can appreciate. Well, it's just also the effective use of space. You know, we had that experiment out at Mawson Lakes where we put the tank under the driveway and much easier than purchasing another water tank. And, yes, that watered all the gardens. So some great examples there. Particularly with South Australia being the driest state on the driest continent in the world. 
Andrew, when we talk about costs involved for concrete segmental pavements in terms of the construction, the maintenance and then the upkeep, can you give us some insights into how that plays out practically? So I guess more so in a broad manner. Maybe I won't be directly answering your question, but giving some context in the area. Asset management in local government has been a subject that's gone from zero to hero in the last decade. So that consideration of whole of life cycle cost is now more and more, and, and it's it's not perfect, but it, it's improving and it's getting there and it will be even stronger in the, in the next decade. But it's becoming more and more important in that overall conversation. And I know that when you consider that whole of life cycle cost, if that's where you can come back to brick pavers, providing that, looking better against some of your conventional road products. I guess the other thing, even from a more practical perspective, we put in a concrete footpath and on an asset management book, we give that a particular life because that's what we expect it to last for. And that's on, on a law of averages. But if we're looking at it purely in a textbook perspective, we forget that a house gets developed next to that site or a telecommunications company comes in or a service authority comes in and does something or a tree decides to grow and provides localised patch damage to a footpath. Now, we'll come back and replace two, three slabs of concrete prior to, yeah, we'll do that under maintenance, which sort of, yes, gets caught in asset management, but doesn't really play in the, that long-term life the same way as the total replacement. But we'll replace two or three big slabs of concrete, which go off of the truck and most cases get recycled, but two new slabs go in, and I'm talking about big slabs. I think one of the practical benefits of brick pavers is that when you have damage that needs to be repaired, it is more isolated and can be more local patch fixed. And as long as you've actually got the pavers, nine times out of ten, if they're not broken, you actually reuse the paver. It's more about resetting the base and the surrounds around it. So I think the maintenance side of things is, a, without pulling the accounting book out, I think the maintenance side of things is where the average person can practically see that benefit of being able to just pull out the logo bricks that need to be replaced, mm-hmm. reset the base and get that nice and neat and put the bricks back down mm-hmm. with maybe a small handful of brick replacements for things that got broken or chipped or something along the way. Mm-hmm. I think that's got to be less material invasive, time invasive and cost invasive than doing a conventional three square metres of concrete out and three square metres of concrete going back in. And the wastage as well, as you alluded to before. Yeah. Now, you've mentioned a few of your projects, but do you have a favourite project where you've used permeable pavers? So some projects are sticking in my head, and these are not mine, but about three, four years ago now, I went to a conference in Sydney that was held at the Olympic Stadium, and I'd always heard of the permeable project that was done there. You know, in Australia, one of the landmark permeable projects, the main thoroughfare down the side of all the stadiums in the Olympic Village. So I visited that 20 years after it went down. It looks smick. It still looks good. It still works. It still functions. It's a big barren expanse, so maybe urban designer things, it's not the prettiest job, but it does what it needs to do. And I think this comes back to it was evidently built right. (laughs) Yes. Because with high traffic load, high use, it's still there. The entrance into the, the subway underpass, you've got all the permeable leading into that. I know that one of the things that keeps get throwing up about, so that they have the eco trihex paver there, which has a larger gap between the bricks for the permeable element. Not that it's something that I need to worry about on a day-to-day basis, but the high hill conversation always comes out with those pavers. And to see them in a location like that, where you would get a lot of function traffic. And I've always asked the question, have you actually had any real-world complaints about permeable pavers not being 100% smooth, having the little divots in them. 
And I'm yet to find a practitioner that actually has had a real world kickback. Well, I think I've said it to you before and I say it to nearly everyone. I mean, I'm a woman with heels and I've never actually had a problem. But I'm so curious as to the amount of men that tell me the problems I'm going to have with my heels on permeable paving. And I just wish they could think about a few other female problems (laughs) other than that. And maybe we could move forward on those ones a bit more. I will just focus on the ones we can fix with pavers. (laughs) Um, the um, The other project, which brings it back more a bit local, but I still think is a bit of a landmark project is the northern side of Adelaide Oval. Mm-hmm. And again, I would actually challenge the average person in the community to actually realise, you know, they don't realise what they're walking through. It's one of those jobs that's been done so neatly and seamlessly. That's the thing about a great job. If you do a great job really well and seamlessly, no one really notices what they're going through. They just enjoy the experience. Mm-hmm. I guess that's a little reward factor for myself as a designer. If people enjoy the environment they're in and don't realise why they're enjoying it, you get that little little spark of reward. That's that's why you do it, type mm-hmm. thing. It's almost like the Insta moment. If you see one of your projects in the back of an Instagram photograph, you go, yep, okay, I did something okay. Yeah, The happy girlfriends were happy to use as the backdrop to their photo or something like that. So that's a great project. And then I guess locally coming back to things that I've been involved with, we did an upgrade of an old industrial street called Holland Street, links through to you know, the backside of the entertainment centre, the back, the road across the back of the brewery on Port Road. And that's actually the project I was talking about with the integrated design, the multiple inputs. We were able to, when we went out to the community, they were really keen that we kept some of the trees in the street. There was chronic conflict between the trees and the infrastructure. And I never blamed the trees for the conflict and I never blamed the infrastructure for the conflict. I blame the era in which it was all set up where people didn't think about conflicts one way or the other. And so in doing that new project, we actually had an urban designer that wanted to reference the river. So down the middle of the road, we ran a a banding of a, a wiggle line down the middle of the road. We had urban designers who wanted the road to be more of a shared space feel and didn't want it to be road centric, traffic centric, vehicle centric. Mm. So the ribbon down the road broke up that normal road language, made it feel like a more a space that pedestrians would be more invited and friendly into. And at the same time, to add texture to that breakup, we bitumized one side of the ribbon, but we permeable paved the other side. And the ribbon ended up running almost like the drip line of the trees that we were keeping. So we had permeable paving inside the ribbon under the drip line of every tree. And it's funny, you talk to anyone going down the street, they say, oh, that looks cool. As soon as you point out the ribbon follows the drip line of the trees, they can never not see that. And suddenly they realise there's actually more logic to this than what they ever thought. Mm. Now, the average person going down the street doesn't need to know that, but it's one of those quaint, cute little things designed into it that had purpose and meaning, but at the same time returns to the user everything you'd want it to do. And we've actually, since doing that project, we're now in conversations with a brewery that's been redeveloped. So the, the old Lions Brewery there is going, the West End Brewery is going yes. to a new world development. Mm-hmm. The university site that's on the other side of that road project has been sold and they've got urban developers in there. Both developers have come to us over the last couple of years and sort of said, well, Holland Street is what they're going to use as the blueprint for what they're doing through the rest of it. So, yeah. It's, it's some like, lovely flattery right there for it, you. Well, it's good, but it's also it's a sustainability project in what we did in Holland Street. Mm-hmm. Those trees we've kept... We've made sure that instead of every inch underneath the bottom of them being hard surface paved and where they were getting water from or how they were getting water, who knows, to now reducing runoff through the permeable pavement use, infiltrating that water into the roots of the trees to give them vitality and health moving forward, taking pollutants out of the stormwater system. We're right on top of the river torrents, so we're reducing the water in the torrents. We're making sure every square inch of water that runs off into the torrents has been filtered and treated. So all those current best practice feels to it. Mm. 
I can't wait to revisit that one. Do you have a fun fact about segmental pavements? I guess my fun learning fact is that permeable pavers aren't permeable pavers. I've mentioned that before, it's a catch line and it confuses most people, but in industry at all levels, people throw around permeable pavers and nine times out of ten they don't know what they mean. Mm-hmm. Permeable pavers can be anything from, a bit like we talked about with the driveway in, the, in a residential development where just the water that lands on it filters through and filters into the ground environment, realistically don't know, need any overflow drainage connected to that. It's just a field. It's just as if it was a grassed area. It's just much harder and multiple usable. Through to permeable, where you have extra area draining onto that. So five square meters of permeable pavement might pick up fifteen square meters of water running off of it. I think three to one's about the general rule that gets used. And so that's a way of soaking away a bit more water than what would naturally occur there. You need to be a little bit mindful in those uses about where that intensification of soaking water goes, mm-hmm. particularly in an Adelaide climate where we've got highly reactive soils. Mindfulness of that and mindfulness of the oversaturation and what's going to happen to that water and the ground movement. And then the third use is where it's lined and all the water that goes in can only come out if you let it out. And even then, even in a line scenario, you can have systems which are detention systems, which are all about slowing down the peak flow of water leaving. We can have a harvest systems where the outlet is a tap or a pump and you keep the water in there until you want to use it for something. So people throw around, oh, we'll use permeable pavements. But when they throw that around, they don't understand what they want to use or how they want to use it. Mm. And the benefits and the costs and the offset costs are different in every one of those scenarios. Yes. You probably already answered this, but the biggest misconception about segmental pavers? I think particularly in a footpath scenario, the biggest misconception is that they cost more. Okay. Particularly if you're comparing it to to concrete footpaths, which I think you'll find most councils around South Australia have got a heavy base of concrete to start off with. Aside from the brewery that you spoke about, any other projects that we should keep our eye on? So we're doing a project in Lockleys at the moment where we literally have three grandfather river red drums literally on the road and it's a little it's it's one of those roads where i call it a tumbleweed road because you probably get more tumbleweed going down the road than what you do traffic and i had a quick look before coming down the oldest photo we have on our corporate systems goes back to about 1930 and these trees were there and noticeable scale then the bigger of the three river red gums i call a three-person hug you'd pretty much need three people arm to arm around it to get around the outside of it and the road project Again, from our asset management system, which is just a clog machine that has numbers and data input into it and chucks out stuff on the other side, had chucked out this road as needing rejuvenation. And in the rutted way of doing the world, we would have said there's some curbing there, there's some bitumen there, we rip out the curbing that needs to be fixed, we put new bitumen down. Pulled it out of the, the rut system and sort of said, look, here's an opportunity for us to do this better. So quite a substantial, probably about... It's not a long road, but probably about half the road we're doing full-width permeable paving. Pretty much most of the drip zone in around the, the gums is all now permeable. And we're literally, the pavers are probably going down within a matter of days. All the concrete edging work and everything has been done, but the pavers are probably going down in the next few days. So, yeah, that's, again, it's in a location where hardly anyone is going to see it, but it's doing the right thing for the right purpose. Um, And just because you've mentioned trees, I mean, that's one of the most common questions we get asked with councils. And again, there's so much misconception around how trees find water. Could you just elaborate on that a little bit more? So one of the most interesting things with trees, brick pavers, and that conversation is coming back to the footpaths. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm a strong advocate of don't reinvent the wheel. 
if something is showing benefit somewhere else, you go copycat it. Don't make life harder for yourself. So I don't proclaim at all to be the inventor of this. We've followed in the, in the footsteps of other local councils and the research that they've done and the university linkages and research that have been done. But an interesting learn is that there's a strong belief that under conventional, whether it be brick, concrete or asphalt footpaths, they're a really good water seal, but that works both ways. Mm-hmm. So when there's evaporation in the soil on the ground and the water wants to percolate up, if it hits the underside of a concrete footpath, it condensates on the underside of the concrete and stays on the underside of the concrete because it can't permeate through the concrete. The fibrous roots of trees goes and finds that. They go, yippee, we're fed. And those roots just go bunter and develop. That's where you get strong root growth under the footpath, which ultimately over time is your conflict, which lifts and pops the footpath. We've picked up detailing that other councils have developed about use of permeable paving around street trees for the, through the footpath area. And we've refined that a little bit and, and developed our own standard for it. And we try as much as possible, and again, trying to integrate that into where we're, where we're doing other capital works, try and integrate that as much as we can adjacent to newly established trees. Because the idea or the science that's been researched through some of the universities in South Australia is that in a permeable treatment, you still get the fibrous roots go out and find the water predominantly during winter because the water is draining through the permeable pavement, so they get a good feed, they drag that back to the tree. But then when you hit summer, because that area under the permeable pavement now breathes and heats up, those little fibrous roots that grow in there die off and ultimately don't develop into the big roots, and that ends up being cyclic. So the next winter, the fibrous roots come back, they get all their water source, next summer they die off again. So it's the roots elsewhere that end up growing and becoming the larger root systems, the stability root systems, so you don't get that conflict then with the permeable pavement but you also but the permeable pavement does provide the benefit to the tree through the breathing through the water so you get a healthier tree and less conflicts and that's being smart about how and where you use the pavers permeable pavers we can pull it down to be about as cost competitive we both the councils that sort of first established this and the details we've developed we've really trimmed down the base underneath to again try and bring the cost as you know you won't find it at the moment any of the technical details and the product manufacturers as a standard um, formation because it doesn't align to what the standard details you'll find in most manufacturers product manuals talk about because it's not trafficable as a footpath environment so that updated detail, reducing the base right down to something somewhat comparable to what conventional brick pavers are, means that we can make it as cost comparable as possible, which eliminates the argument for not doing it. Andrew, where do you see the future in South Australia of water-sensitive urban design? Where do you think you're heading? I would hope that we're able to get more and more uptake of water-sensitive urban design into standard practice and standard comprehension, standard understanding. Going back to almost the start of our conversation, getting the people out of the ruts and relying on the graduates, relying on the, the new blood that have the thirst for knowledge to, to understand these things and go and rattle the cages of the, the old people set in their ways. I'd be, be careful I might be an old person, hopefully not one set my ways. But if I'm doing something that's set my ways, I'd challenge any graduate to, rock, to rattle my cage too. So bring that knowledge base in because nine times out of ten, there's something there that we can all take away. And the more we can encourage, and it's great that we've got government entities in South Australia who do to provide seed funding to research, they provide funding to encourage the implementation. We're getting broad crossovers now with a lot of the sustainability and the greening. We're understanding that the, the blue supports the green, the water supports the green, and those people that are interested in water, sense of urban design and permeable pavements 
need to work stronger with those people trying to provide the green canopy cover because if we work together we can get better outcomes for all than if we're independently working parallel and fighting for resources and assistance and awareness and benefit so that's more and more awareness more and more demonstration of what can be done i hate demonstration projects as a term because to me it should be business as usual with most of what we're talking about i should actually scold myself for using the word demonstration because it's a word I want removed from the vocabulary <laughs> um, because, yeah, like I said, most of the cases, there's no reason that most of this can't be done as a day, day in, day out, standard practice. Andrew, we could keep talking for hours and, in fact, we may ask our audience to say what we should next talk about when we meet again, but I've loved this conversation and I always love hearing your passion and every time I listen to you I learn something new. So thank you so much for everything you've done. Thank you for having me. And we've learned a lot today. Thank you. Thanks. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for ideas of what to talk about. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.